Church family, I hope and pray you are doing well. Listen, if God sees fit to answer our prayer, Lord willing, we will be able to gather and do this in person a week from the moment you're watching this video, if you're watching it on Sunday the 5th. And what a privilege um, it has been to see God work through this process. We have longed to be together, but by God's grace, He's given us a medium where we continue uh, can continue to press on in the Word. So continue praying for that as we prepare to regather. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you, if you haven't yet, to open up to uh, John chapter 12. We'll be in verses 20 through 36. Always good to have a hard copy of the Scriptures with you. And let me pray as we begin our time together. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to open Your Word as we walk through the Gospel of John. God, as we are approaching through this gospel, as we are approaching the cross of Christ, we ask that your Holy Spirit would take the truths as Jesus is anticipating his death, the truth of salvation, the truth of our need, our sin, your grace, and that the Holy Spirit would press those deep within us. God, we pray in these next few moments as we look deeply, as we gaze upon the cross, that we would see the great love with which you have loved us. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that it does not return void, and we pray that we would be transformed by it as we look at it now in these next few moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Think with me for a moment about the symbol of a cross. Uh, the cross has a, a unique and interesting history. Crucifixion, which is death by hanging on a cross, was invented, it's believed, by the Persians sometime around 500 B.C., but it was perfected and used as a form of capital punishment, most famously by the Romans. And this kind of death was one that was reserved only for the worst of criminals. Uh, it had a 100% success rate, meaning no single individual has ever survived a crucifixion. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus called death by the cross, death by crucifixion, the most wretched of deaths. It was designed to cause as much pain for an individual for as long as possible before death. This is actually, word crucifixion is actually where we get the word excruciating to describe extreme pain. So it's a bit strange, isn't it? As you think about the emblem of the cross in recent years in our culture, it's become a form of fashion. It's branded on t-shirts, it's, it's on tattoos, we, we wear it around our necks. And if you think about that to, to the, the first century mind, that would be completely foreign, even shocking, comparable to uh, wearing an electric chair around your neck or a, or a syringe. Yet, this gruesome image, the symbol of the cross, is at the center of our faith. Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. Even that phrase, if you're a, you're a Christian, for many of us, that has become so common that we have failed to recognize just how jarring it is, right? Or maybe if you're, you're not uh, as familiar with Christianity, maybe exploring, this barbaric and bloody picture is, is confusing to you. Why is such a gruesome symbol at the center of Christianity? Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus begins to explain this for us. As Jesus is, in face, is facing His impending death, He's just days away from the cross, He tells us that the hour has come for Him to die. And then He begins to, to answer 
that question, what does the cross accomplish? And so as we walk through this passage, we see the answer to that question really in, in three ways. First, Jesus shows us that the cross secures eternal life. Second, Jesus shows us that the cross glorifies the Father. And third and finally, in our passage, Jesus shows us that the cross defeats the enemy. Now, as we look at this this morning, this is not all there is to say about the cross. In fact, the rest of the New Testament has so much to say about the cross, but this helps us understand why Jesus came to die and why the cross is at the center of our faith. So as we journey through these verses, really the goal this morning is to see the overwhelming love of God displayed on the cross for sinners like you and me. This is one of those passages where the primary application is to be in awe at the grace of God for us in Christ, that he would go through such lengths to give us his only son to rescue us. So let's jump in. This, the first thing we see about the cross in our text is that the cross secures eternal life. Verse 20 starts by giving us the setting. We read, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. This is the Passover feast. Verse 21, So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, this setting, these two verses, signal a key change in Jesus' ministry and in the Gospel of John. As Israel is rejecting the Messiah, these Greeks, which here is, is just a word, a general term for non-Jews, they come to see Jesus. And that word see there is not physical. They're not just wanting to take a look at Jesus. They want to interview him. They want to speak to him. Maybe they heard about the, the story where Jesus in his righteous anger turned over the tables in the temple back in John chapter 2. See, in that story, the Jews had hindered the Gentiles, non-Jews, much like these men who came to Jesus, from worshiping God by buying and selling and changing money in the court of the Gentiles in the temple. Mark's account of that story, which parallels John chapter 2, Jesus says this, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So these Greeks who come to, to see and interview Jesus, they likely saw in Jesus an advocate. They think, okay, maybe this Jesus will be more inclusive of us non-Jews who desire to worship the true God. And this is so important for us because really after these two verses, after verse 21, we don't hear any more about these Greeks. But John is telling us that their approach to Jesus signals something important in the gospel message. The gospel will be going out to the nations. Jesus' public ministry, is, teaching ministry is coming to the end, at the end of chapter 12. Uh, his ministry to the Jews who have primarily rejected him has come to the end. But as we read through in the New Testament, the gospel is meant not just for one nation, but for all nations. So this is telling us not first and foremost, uh, what does the cross accomplish? We'll get to that in a moment. But who is the cross for? It's for all nations. God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, the one man from whom the nation of Israel came. He said, through your offspring, all nations will be blessed. Jesus declares this explicitly in our passage this morning, down in verse 32, when he says, And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. This means all kinds of people. 
So there is no uh, national or ethnic prejudice at the cross in the gospel. No people group can, can claim a corner on Jesus. The gospel is going global. In verse 22, we read, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, answered Andrew and Philip, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So Jesus, again, he doesn't directly respond to the Greeks. Instead, that signals in his mind the coming cross. And so he launches into this teaching about his death and what it will accomplish. And he says, the hour has come. Now that word, hour, is really important in the Gospel of John. It's shorthand for the crucifixion of Jesus. And so far, we've seen Jesus talk in a future tense about the hour. He's saying the hour is coming. He said that in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 7, and chapter 8. But now, here in chapter 12, Jesus says, not the hour is coming, but the hour has come. It is here. And he goes on to say, in this hour, Jesus tells us, he will be glorified. He's talking about his death. Now, given that image of crucifixion, doesn't it seem strange to talk about something so gruesome as being glorious? Right? It's glorious to win a Super Bowl. Uh, it's, it's glorious to watch a sunset over the Grand Canyon. It's glorious to witness the birth of your child. But to talk about the most gruesome form of death in the history of man as glorious seems a little confusing. So what, what does Jesus mean here? Well, there's many ways that the death of Christ glorifies Jesus. But one way, and this is what he shows us here, is that this death is glorious in its result. And that leads us to the next verse. He gives an illustration to help us see this. Verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus, again, this is an agrarian culture. He's using an image, a metaphor that everyone would have understood. And he's saying, essentially, I am that seed. And my death on the cross is that seed being buried and broken, placed into the ground. It opens up. And the fruit that that one death will bear is the salvation of many. And in that sense, Jesus is glorified. Now, the opposite of that is true as well. If, if a seed doesn't fall down into the soil, if it doesn't die and break open, then there is no fruit, right? So likewise, if Jesus doesn't die, then there is no salvation. Then Jesus applies this to those who are listening, including us. He gets very direct here and he says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What's Jesus saying here? In other words, Jesus is saying, because of my death on the cross, many will find, he gives that phrase, eternal life. Now we've already seen this uh, very explicitly in one of the most popular verses in the Bible, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
Now, gave there in John 3.16 doesn't mean that he gave up some time. He just came, he came, up to, came down to hang out for 33 years and then zip back up to heaven. No, it means he gave his life unto death and in doing so died the death we deserve to die for our sin in our place that we may have eternal life. Jesus tells us here, how do, we, how do we get this eternal life? We too must die. We must die to ourselves. He's not talking about physical death here, but he's talking about coming to the end of ourselves and recognizing that we can do nothing in our own strength to gain eternal life. It's only found by placing our faith in Him who died for us on the cross. So when Jesus says, if you love your life, you'll lose it. What he's not saying is it's sinful to enjoy life. Instead, he's saying, listen, if you value the things of this world, even life itself, more than God, then you will be too blinded to humble yourself and receive the gospel. Likewise, he says, when he says you need to hate your life to keep it, he's not encouraging us to demean the value of human life in, our, in ourselves. But he's saying to value God so highly that we are willing to sacrifice and forsake all else for Christ. It means we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus is better than everything. That leads us to ask the question, have you come to the end of yourself? Have you placed your faith in Christ alone for eternal life? Or, which we're prone to do, are you, are you somehow trying to work your way into eternal life. Listen, if money could buy eternal life, Jesus would not have come to die. If your morality could have purchased you eternal life, Jesus would not have come to die. If religious commitment could purchase you eternal life, Jesus would not have come to die. But nothing can purchase eternal life, only the death of Christ on the cross. Have you believed and received eternal life that comes at the cross of Jesus? But also, as Pastor Clint talked about last week, are you, are you dying to yourself and finding life in Christ? Remember that image of Mary. It led to not just trusting in Christ and looking forward to that future of eternal life, but a daily, sacrificial, costly faith in Jesus. See, Jesus tells us here we must be willing to follow Him where He is. Well, where is He going? He's going to the cross. What He's saying here is that our lives should be marked by this daily Christ-like self-denial and continual return to Him in faith. Not only are there future blessings of eternal life, but eternal life in Jesus begins today. The Apostle Paul uses this crucifixion language and applies it directly to himself and to us in Galatians 2.20 when he puts it like this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, in a world of self-exaltation, Jesus loves us by laying down his life. And we find our eternal life when we come to the end of ourselves and by faith are crucified with him. And when that happens, we get the joy of eternal life that starts today, and God gets the glory, which leads us to number two. Second, we see that the cross glorifies the Father. Look at verse 27. 
Jesus then says, now, as he's reflecting on the cross, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. But Jesus says his soul is troubled. And the language here expresses deep and unsettled this feeling of sorrow because he's going to die a brutal death. Yes, but much more than that, it's not just the physical death of the cross, but the fact that he will be forsaken by the Father so that we may be accepted. And as he thinks about it, it causes this deep sense of sorrow in him. And he considers that weight. And he actually prays. Our, our, our translations have it as a sort of a hypothetical question. Father, save me from this hour. Should I ask that? But it's likely that this was an actual prayer, much like in the garden. He's saying, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, there's any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. His purpose remains here. Even as he faces the horror of the cross, Jesus is resolved. He's rock solid in his commitment to obey the Father's will on our behalf. Now, this is, friends, this is where you and I would tap out. We would say the pain is too much. I can't do it. But Jesus, because of the great love that he has for us and the desire to glorify the Father, he presses on. D.A. Carson comments, he says, Jesus can no sooner pray to be spared this hour to escape this cup then he must face again his unswerving commitment to adhere to the Father's will. In verse 28, he gives another prayer. He says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So this audible voice of the Father gives two responses to Jesus' prayer. First, he says, I have glorified my name. That's past tense. What's he talking about here? Well, the Father is saying, in your ministry, Jesus, which is about to come to a close, in John, that's the seven signs that emphasize that. You have perfectly obeyed my will. You have perfectly glorified me by following me and displaying my glory to the world that you were sent to. He's affirming his son and saying, you were successful in carrying out my will on earth. You've brought glory to my name. Then second, he says, and future tense, I will glorify my name through you. And this is looking forward to the cross. Now, in John, it's a major theme in John. We've already seen how Jesus himself is a display of the glory of God. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. But more specifically, then how does the cross glorify God the Father? Here's how. The cross of Christ glorifies God the Father because it's the perfect display of God's character. I'll give you an example. On the cross, we see perfectly displayed both on one side the justice and righteousness of God and the love and mercy of God. Let's consider both of those for a moment. First, the justice and righteousness of God. Now, we all have this innate sense of justice right? because we were made in the image of God who is just. That's why there is collective sorrow and outrage when we watch a man murdered in the street, the police officer's knee on his neck, because we see that and we say that person was supposed to uphold justice, but instead he killed one of God's image bearers. That is unjust. But when we look to the Bible, the description is actually much darker. 
Because injustice is not just something out there that we can point out, but it is something inside of us that overflows from our sinful hearts and leads to unjust living. Romans 3.23, for example, says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. So it's like a job that you and I have worked, and we have earned our wages as sinners, and that wage is death. Now we tend to say, well, you know, nobody's perfect. That's sort of our definition of sin. And we brush it off as not that big of a deal. But friends, God, who is perfectly righteous and perfectly just, says, you who are unjust, you who are unholy and unrighteous and who have scorned me, I can have no part with you because of your unrighteousness, because of your sin, because of your injustice. So God stands as a righteous judge, and we, and by we, I mean all of us, we stand as guilty, unrighteous sinners before Him deserving just judgment. And friends, if that sounds too harsh, just imagine with me a courtroom scenario in which a known murderer stands before a judge Not only that, he has a whole list of other proven crimes too dark to even mention. The evidence is clear that he's guilty. You know it, the judge knows it, and the jury knows it. But in that courtroom one day, the judge walks in and he says, you know what, I'm feeling nice. He sort of just shrugs his shoulders and says, I think I'm going to let you off the hook. You're free to go. How would you respond in that scenario? You would respond with outrage right? You would say, wait a second, you judge have failed your sworn duty to uphold justice. It's not just to just look at somebody in their crimes and sweep it under a rug. Well, friends, you and I are that criminal. We have scorned God. We have rebelled against Him in thought and deed We have demeaned His image bearers, not just once, but continually. And we stand deserving of God's just judgment. But on the cross, Christ stepped into our place as a substitute to take the just punishment we deserve. That's where the courtroom illustration breaks down. right? No one can stand in the place of another in a courtroom. right? But that's what Jesus does for us on the cross. Romans 3.26 says that the cross shows, quote, His righteousness, or some translations say justice, at the present time so that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see that? God is just on the cross because punishment is rightly dealt out, but He is justifier, which means He makes us righteous, because he put forward Christ in our place. So justice is served, yes, but because Christ has taken that on himself in our place, we are justified. We are declared right before God. And that leads to that second side. Not only the justice and righteousness of God displayed on the cross, but also the love and mercy of God. See, not only do we desire innately justice and righteousness, but we desire love, right? We want people to value us. We want people to care for us, even though deep down we know we're flawed. We know we don't deserve it. And so often our understanding of love is superficial and conditional. 
We love those who benefit us in return or, or we live our lives as though our performance is what earns love or at least keeps our love. Well, friends, on the cross, the perfect love and mercy of God is displayed. Why? Because we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we who believe are made right, brought into relationship with God through Jesus because He loves us. He pays the ultimate price, the life of His beloved Son, to rescue enemies and make them friends. We've seen that already in John 3.16, but listen to the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. He says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, means declared right by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Paul sums it up on the cross, in the death of Jesus, we have the justice and love of God. I love how William Rees, who wrote the famous hymn, Here is Love, puts it poetically and beautifully. He says, On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy float a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. And here it is, listen. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. See, friends, if we want to see the glory of God, if we want to understand and know God for who He truly is, then we must look to the cross where Jesus died. The perfect display of God's character, His love and justice meet at the cross. Friends, this is an invitation for us to study the cross. Think deeply about these passages that we're reflecting on. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand the weight of your sin that placed Him there and the peace and righteousness that are offered to you there for those who believe. Now, this is why in verse 31, Jesus goes on to say, Now is the judgment of the world. At the cross is the judgment of the world. Well, how, how does that happen? Because Jesus has come as the revelation of God to expose works of darkness, right? He's, to, he's calling people to the light and showing works of darkness. So his death on the cross, his glorification, it draws a line in the sand, so to speak. So to reject Jesus and his work on the cross is to reject God, and thus you will receive that judgment for your sins that you deserve. But to believe in him is to receive the gift of salvation, to have your sins paid for and judgment removed and eternal life granted. What, what love God has lavished on us in Christ. As I was thinking about an illustration to, to capture this concept, a, a story of both justice and love, I was reminded of something so important for us as Christians. Every story that we're drawn to expresses this. In fact, the gospel is the story. Every other story is just an illustration of what we see here. Why do we love watching superheroes pound villains over and over and over again, usually at the, the uh, sacrificial expense of the hero? Right? Why did we just know? You just knew as you were watching Avengers Endgame that Iron Man was going to die to kill Thanos. By the way, if I just spoiled the movie for you, it's been out for a while. You should have seen it already. Because deep down, we know that justice is served through sacrifice. That's reflection. That's an echo of the gospel story. Or, or why do we watch the same rehashed romantic comedy over and over again with a different title and new actors? There's always a conflict 
right? Where there's a separation of love, something threatens it, then there's a redemption, and then there's this consummation where, where true love wins the day, right? What is that? That's the gospel story. Think deeply about these stories. Think deeply about your own story and you'll see this innate desire for love and justice, righteousness and mercy. And where does that perfectly meet? All of these are but a faint echo of the story of redemption at the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus deals the death blow to the villain and then he, he rescues his love, displaying the perfect and glorious character of God. And that leads us to number three. The cross defeats the enemy. So the cross secures eternal life, the cross glorifies the Father, and the cross defeats the enemy. Verse 31 says, Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show but what, by what kind of death he was going to die. The ruler of this world is Satan. And he is cast out, Jesus tells us, by the work of the cross. Now, that's interesting because the death of Christ might seem like a victory for the enemy, right? A, a defeat of Jesus. After all, the God-man dies. So how is Satan defeated by the cross? Well, we have to understand primarily how Satan works. Satan's chief power against you and I primarily is in his ability to accuse and lie. He, he tempts us to sin. Then when you sin, he whispers in your ear and he says, look what you've done. You're worthless. God can't love you. You might as well live your own life without Him. He's accusing. Or, if you happen to be a disciplined person, He lies to you and He tells you, you know what? You're pretty good. You're good at this being righteous thing. You can do it on your own. You, you don't need Jesus. But whatever you do, don't mess up. Right? See, Satan uses both the breaking of God's law and your attempts to measure up to God's law as weapons to keep you from Christ. He is the accuser and he is the father of lies. Well, friends, what happened at the cross? Jesus, who kept God's law for you, which you can never do, then paid the debt you owed for breaking God's law with his very life. So, and listen, friends, I know some of you are, are likely struggling with this right now. When the accuser comes and says, you failed again, you don't measure up. We who believe the gospel respond with the message of the cross. We say, of course we don't measure up, but Christ does and he's died for me. Here's how Paul puts it in Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He tells us that God made us alive. How? By canceling the record of debt. That's what Satan tries to hold against us, right? With its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's Satan and his demons, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now friends, how can we be sure of this defeat? Because Jesus didn't just die. He didn't stay dead, but he rose victorious over Satan's sin and death and secured life for all who believe. In other words, as the Puritan John Owen says, the death, the cross was the death of death through the death of Christ. So yes, Satan continues to accuse and tempt, but he does so as a defeated enemy. He's going down, kicking and screaming until that final day pictured in Revelation chapter 12, 11, which says they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. 
So church, when you hear that voice of the accuser, here's how you appropriate this to your life. You remind him and you remind yourself of the cross of Christ. Listen to this counsel from Martin Luther. He says, when the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, because you say I'm a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. And I reply, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say I'm a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that with your own sword, I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet for Christ died for sinners. As often as you can object that I'm a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ, my Redeemer, on whose shoulders and not on mine lie all my sins. So when you say I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but comfort me immeasurably. Friends, that is how Christ defeats the enemy on the cross. He has removed all his weapons that are formed against you. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. And this is the cross of Christ. Oh, so much more can be said, but we know at the core, on the cross, Jesus secured our salvation. He glorified the Father and he defeats the enemy. Now the question for you and I is, this is Pastor Clint talked about last week, how will we respond? Jesus tells us His cross in verse 32 will draw all people to Himself, but this doesn't mean that everyone will respond to the cross in repentance and faith. What He means again there is that all nations, people from all nations, tribes, and tongues will find salvation in Him. In fact, as we see in the next passage and we see even here, many are blinded by unbelief. Those who heard the voice of the Father in verse 29 try to brush it off as, as thunder or an angel. Jesus ends this passage by, by warning us. He says, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Friends, if you have not placed your faith in Christ and His work on the cross for your salvation, Jesus is inviting you now to believe and become a son or daughter of the light. See His love displayed on the cross and welcome Him in. And church, for those of you who believe, maybe even walking with Jesus for a while, do you see, I pray you see the centrality of the cross for your life. Remember the cross continually as you walk with Jesus and you will live abundantly in His grace. You'll delight in His glory and you will be equipped to stand against the accusations and lies of the evil one. Now, in light of all this, it makes sense that the emblem of the cross is a, is a wonderful picture of Christianity and God's love, doesn't it? Listen to John Stott as we close, reflect on this. He says, The fact that a cross became the Christian symbol and that Christians stubbornly refused in spite of ridicule to discard it in favor of something less offensive can have only one explanation. It means that the centrality of the cross 
originated in the mind of Jesus himself. It was out of loyalty to him that his followers clung so doggedly to this sign. Brothers and sisters, let's flee to Christ. Let's cling doggedly to the cross of Christ. Let's be stubborn in our commitment to know Jesus at the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we as sinners deserving of just judgment can find our record of debt completely removed because of Christ's work on the cross. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to the the beauty of the cross, your love for us there, the sacrifice that Christ made for us, and that we would live daily in the shadow of it. God, that we would see and know your character, your love and righteousness displayed. God, that you would equip us to stand firm against the lies and accusations of the evil one. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.